All right, let's grab our seats and we're going to get started. Heidelberg Catechism. Hopefully you're all in the right class. Um, can someone, uh, Ryan, can you go out and close, the, close up the ark? Tell them, oh, there you go, Derek's got it. Tell them the rains are coming. Right. It's always interesting to me the arrangement of uh, the congregation where people sit. So today you've got all these people squished in together over here, and you've got only a few people over here. And I don't know what that means. I'm not going to try to interpret it, but uh... yeah, right, right. Yeah, I've seen that before. All right, let's get started. Um... So we're studying the Heidelberg Catechism together. I brought a little jewel from my library today I thought I'd share with you. I told you I have lots of books on, I have lots of books on everything, but I have lots of books on uh, the Catechism. And as you know, there are, uh, 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 Zacharias Ursinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, published in 1563, he lectured on the Heidelberg Catechism at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And, uh, and from those lectures came his commentary on the catechism. So just as you can get commentaries on Scripture, there's actually a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism that Ursinus wrote. There's modern commentaries that are very short, some really helpful ones uh, that are very devotional. You can use them in your devotions uh, week by week. But the Heidelberg, or the uh, Ursinus's commentary is uh, very technical. It's fat. It's great for if you really want to dig in deeply into Reformed theology and, and learn a lot. It's something to maybe tackle once in your lifetime. Um, last year, uh, some of you may know, the congregation blessed me with a Christmas gift. And this is, a, this is my, I have a lot of old books. This is my oldest and most treasured. This is a copy of Ursinus' commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. The first year it was uh, translated into English. Uh, 1633. So it's almost 400 years old, and uh, it's still in great shape. Um, yeah, the, the pages, uh, it's rag cloth, uh, which means that it's basically cotton, uh, not wood. That's why the pages are, are still preserved uh, to this day. I would pass it around and let y'all look at it, but <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. Just, uh, if you want to come look at it, you can, you can look at it later. But uh, that's, my congregation loves me. I wonder what they're getting me this year. So I'm, just I'm just kidding. That was very expensive. And it was, they should never have spent that much money on me. And, but I love that thing very much. And i uh, very proud of it. Okay. Uh, Heidelberg, Cat- what Lord's Day are we on? Lord's Day 5, right? 5. Okay. Right? Yes, we did four last week. All right, we get into the grace section now. So, um, yeah, so as you remember, the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into 52 Lord's Days, so 52 Sundays. You know, as Reformed people, we call Sunday the Lord's Day. You know, from uh, Revelation chapter 1, we see this as the new covenant expression of the Sabbath, not that it's a uh, drudgery or a heavy legal requirement, but it's a blessing. It's a holiday. It's a day that we get to withdraw from culture, worship the Lord, 
rest from our labors during the week and enjoy that pattern, that rhythm of six days of labor and one day of rest that God modeled for us in the beginning. And uh, so through the 52 Lord's Days, uh, we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God, not only receiving the gospel, receiving the sacrament, worshiping the Lord, but we grow in our knowledge of what we believe and why. And so the Heidelberg was designed to take you through the basics and most essentials of the Christian faith. And so that's why, in, in, in one year. And so that's why it has 52 Lord's Days. First Lord's Day, questions one and two, is that introduction. <clears throat> and then Lord's Days two, three, and four are the section, is the section on our misery. So that's questions three through 11. Guilt, remember, it's guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And so now we enter into the grace section, which is the largest section, most appropriately, right? So we come now to question 12 uh, in Lord's Day 5. So after hearing all the bad news and hearing that we are sinful, uh, not because God made us sinful, but because Adam fell, we looked at that, he was our representative in the garden, our federal head, and he rebelled against God, and that had consequences for us. That means we received two things because of Adam's fall. Anybody remember the two things that we got? Guilt. means the whole human race is guilty, even from Adam's fall. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, said the Puritans. And what's the other thing? Pollution. So pollution is the corruption of the human heart. So you have both of those things. Um, it's not that you become guilty the first time you sin, you're already conceived in guilt, in the guilt of Adam. And then we, just, we incur more guilt through all the sin that we commit. So guilt and pollution. Justification solves the problem of guilt. Sanctification is solving the problem of human pollution. And so, but those two things, we, every human being has in Adam. And so what we need is to be taken uh, out of that category of being in Adam and being placed in Christ. Um, in Christ uh, is not meant to be um, a way of signing your name at the bottom of emails or cards. Um, in Christ, I thought that's wrong, but I just want you to understand what that term in Christ means. It's a category. It's a category. It's, it's juxtaposed to being in Adam. And Paul does this all over in Romans. He talks about flesh, spirit, slave, free. Okay, in Adam, in Christ. And you've been taken out of being in Adam and in Christ. You still struggle with the pollution, and that's what sanctification is solving, but you are now in Christ. Paul uses that some 160 sometimes in all of his letters, that term in Christ. So important that we understand what that means. It's a category that you're now in. Um, that God has graciously brought you out of, the, of being in that category of being in Adam. So, uh, so now we talk about being in Christ. Question 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve both in this world and forever after. Uh, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment? 
and return to God's favor. Right, so this is, the, this is really the most in, important thing for us to understand concerning uh, the law as it comes to us. Um, that's an expression of God's justice that must be satisfied. Um, and we have not met that, that uh, requirement. And this is why he, he instituted the whole Mosaic law. The whole point of the Mosaic law was to give us a, 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 a historical illustration of our uh, inability to satisfy his justice and to, uh, and to obey him. It's, a, it's really, in many ways, uh, a, a recapitulation of what Adam had in the garden. Not that, not that Israel could have saved themselves if they were being obedient, but there were conditions placed upon Israel. If you obey, you're going to get blessing. If you are obedient as a nation, going to expand your borders, going to have peace in the land, your women will be fertile, you're going to have great agriculture, there'll be rains from heaven, there'll be peace on the borders. Um, But if you disobey as a nation, you're going to get just the opposite. There's going to be plagues, famine, drought, pestilence, and that's what you see happening um, throughout 1 and 2 Kings. And then finally, they just get destroyed in exile. Um, it's because they cannot keep the law. They can't keep the law, and God's justice needs to be satisfied. They, it needs to be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Now, this is our problem. We can't escape God's punishment. And this, by the way, is what really that word saved means. In, in modern American evangelicalese, the term saved often means to people, when I came to faith in Christ, you know, when did you get saved? Now, I don't want to pick too much on people because no, there's always people who will say, oh gosh, I say that, and now he's going to hear me say that, and he's not going to like me. Um, no, you're here to learn. I used to say that too. It's not good to say, because it, it, it really misleads great story is uh, by R.C. Sproul when he was at, I think, Temple University giving some lectures, and he's walking across the campus, and some young, enthusiastic, zealous, uh, well-meaning student, uh, filled with joy because he has come to faith in Christ. Doesn't know anything. He's just new baby Christian. But he knows he wants to go out and tell other people about the gospel, but doesn't even know, understand the gospel enough to even articulate it. He, he ran up to R.C. and says, hey, are you saved? And uh, Sproul said, uh, he was kind of startled, and he said, saved from what? And the guy said, um, well, you know, are you saved? You know, saved. You have Jesus in your heart. Are you saved? He goes, well, what? you said saved. You have to be saved from something. Saved from what? And the guy didn't really know. He said, I don't know. You know, I'm talking about, do you have Jesus in your heart kind of thing, which is actually another term that's not really biblical. It's, a, it's kind of a misnomer. Um, I remember a little kid saying, Jesus is in my heart. 
What's he doing in my heart? Get him out of there. I don't want him in my heart. Uh, it's, a mi- it's a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But anyway, the saved is another one. When we talk about saved, when the Bible talks about saved, it's being very specific. It's talking about being saved from something. What? The wrath of God. You're saved by God from God. It's not so much being saved from a lesser form of living. You know, well, I was on drugs and then I got off drugs. You don't need Christianity for that. People do that all the time without Christianity. Well, I was, you know, a mean guy, drank a lot, got in fights, and then my my life turned around. Um, People do that through Scientology. People do that through yoga, Oprah, uh, uh, paleo uh, uh, diet, um, all, you name it, okay? Whatever it is, you, that people make changes apart from... That's not being saved. When we're talking about being saved, we're talking about right here, question 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment, both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape? That would be actually a better way to say it. Say, hey, I got escaped. <laughs> Brother, are you escaped? <laughs> Yeah. Um, when, do, when did you get escaped? <laughs> um, and then actually one way of putting it is, well, I was saved 2,000 years ago when Christ died for my sins, when he said it is finished. And I know the Holy Spirit, I, I get it. I mean, the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. We come to faith in Christ. You know, For me, I first heard the gospel when I was about four. Went to Christian schools and um, Sunday school and didn't really understand things, and it was around 25 or so that I think I really began to come to faith. Um, but, you know, that's the Holy Spirit applying the work of redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished. But to say saved, it can actually be a little bit of a, it can be misleading. And, um, and evangelicalese is filled with that, a lot of misleading things. I just did a wedding, and um, I was up in L.A. with a lot of family and different people, and you know, you hear a lot of evangelicalese and a lot of prayers. You don't want to be too critical of people's prayers. But a lot of times there's no thought put into it at all. Words like this get thrown out there all the time. Heavenly Father, if prayers will begin, we just lift up this evening to you. We just lift up this meal to you, just as always used, lifting up things. And then it's in your name we pray. The Bible never says to pray in the name of the Father. We are to pray in the name of Christ. And actually, that prayer is actually a modalistic prayer, which is heretical. It's confusing the Son with the Father. Now, I didn't say this to anybody, obviously. You know, they don't know, and they're well-meaning, and it does, you know, they're just not well-taught, that's all. But this is why this is catechism class. It's so that you won't make those mistakes, because you'll learn, and that you'll grow, and you'll be able to help other people, and be able to actually, for them to understand things a little bit more, and think more clearly. And the Heidelberg Catechism helps us do that. So according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? How can we be saved? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or another. Okay, question 13. Can we pay this debt ourselves? Okay, um, can, any, can another creature 
any at all pay this debt for us. So what about all those animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant? Did they remove sin? What does the New Testament say? No, the blood of bulls and calves, goats, sheep, it could not remove sin. It, it's, it was symbolic. It was a type in redemptive history of something that, would, that God had promised of the Christ who would come. But it actually doesn't remove sin. And, and, it, and it required obedience. It required you to, to provide a sacrifice. I'm always hearing people say how, oh, the Mosaic Covenant had grace in it because, you know, there were, there were uh, sacrifices and that pointed to the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah, but you had to provide the sacrifice. And the gospel is that God provides a sacrifice. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament required you to bring a sheep that was unblemished and to get over there to the tabernacle and to get in line and for that to be a symbol of God's atonement that uh, would then satisfy his wrath against your sin. But it actually doesn't remove any sin. It's just done in faith in the promise that he's going to to provide his own sacrifice. Uh, Remember when Abraham was going to Mount Moriah with Isaac, and uh, Isaac says, Dad, I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, yes, I want to talk to you about that. Uh, But he says, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And he did. There was a ram caught in the bush. And so he doesn't sacrifice Isaac. And that's the whole point of of all of uh, the scriptures is to tell us that God saves, saves us from our sin, from the wrath of God because of our sin. We escape. We escape the justice of God because it was poured out on someone else not an animal, and not ourselves. Uh, We can't pay the debt because we increase our guilt every day. And we have not, as we've seen already, we can't keep the law because we're already conceived and born in sin. So that brings us to question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And so that, of course, is the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, very simple, very straightforward. Any, any questions so far on any of this? There was a hand earlier. Okay. Very straightforward. But ultimately, it's important that we understand that this is really what the whole Bible is teaching. As we you know, put that timeline up there a couple of times, uh, it, Adam has not fulfilled... Uh, the requirement that God has given him to be obedient, and therefore he falls short of the glory of God. And God's intention is for us to live in glorified life. Adam falls short of that, and we fall short of that in Adam. In Adam, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, uh, promising that another will come, uh, redemptive history moves forward with that promise and those who have faith look forward 
to God providing the sacrifice and the righteous one uh, who will do for us that which we have not done for ourselves, fulfill all of God's law, and pay the debt that we deserved, uh, or the, the debt that we owe, and the judgment we deserve. So there's two things happening there. <clears throat> there's two things happening. Um, let's see if I got a black one here. Here we go. Got to hide him from all those blessed covenant youth. So there we go. Um, two things are happening. So, okay, we have Adam in the beginning. That's Adam. God's intent is for him to earn glory. Heaven must be earned. When we say heaven, we're talking about a, a glorified earth, a glorified universe. That's the goal. Uh, if he's obedient in everything that God gives him to do, having dominion over the earth, naming all the animals, keeping the garden holy, protecting it from anything evil that would enter, he will earn for himself and all those whom he represents, Romans 5, he's the representative, glory, glorified life. He doesn't do that. You know, he gets the, the big F, right? He's, go, he's blocked from the tree of life. He falls. And so he plunges the whole human race into guilt and to pollution. Now, in order for us to be reconciled to God and to be brought to this, to glorified life, we need someone to pay the debt that we owed because of our sins, but also to fulfill all righteousness that Adam did not fulfill. If it's a, a sinner can't do that because a sinner is already in debt himself and he hasn't fulfilled the law. So there's two sides to this, you see. He has to be actively obedient to merit this. He needs to get an A on the test, in other words. And he's got to pay the fine for getting an F. Both of those things have to happen. And that's why when we talk about justification, for example, when we get later onto the doctrine of justification, um, sometimes, and I grew up hearing, you know, well, what's justification? Because you come across that word all the time in the Bible, especially in Romans and in Galatians. Paul's talking about justification. And um, often what we were told by well-meaning pastors uh, who apparently thought that we couldn't handle very much intellectually, said, um, well, justification just means just as if you never sinned. Okay, that's easy to remember. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. God sees me as, just as if I've never sinned. But you see, that actually is misleading because that's only half of the equation. If, Adam, if we look at Adam as just as if he never sinned, that still doesn't mean that he has fulfilled the requirement that was necessary to earn glory. So, okay, he hasn't got an F on the test, but he hasn't earned an A yet either. He's just as if he never sinned, just as if he never got an F. What we need is an A on the paper. The problem is we have an F. So we need somebody to earn the A, and we need someone to pay the fine for the F. And justification, in justification, 
What God does is he grants to us the perfection, the righteousness of the second Adam, the one who came and lived a life perfectly that the first Adam did not, the one who came and lived a life that you and I have not, that did for us that which we could not do for ourselves. And he paid the debt. So justification now, when God announces, uh, pronounces us justified, it's just as if you never sinned and just as if you'd always been perfectly obedient. That's how God sees you. And that's why you see an animal can't do this and a sinner can't do this. We need someone to come. We need a second Adam. We need somebody who's not conceived and born in sin like everyone else in the whole human race. But he has to be perfect, truly human. And that's where God the Son comes in. And it's amazing that this isn't just one person out of the human race, but it's God himself who comes into the world and is conceived and born a true, real human being, body and soul, flesh and blood, uh, subject to all the things that humans are. However, he's the one person since Adam who has uh, and Eve, who has been uh, conceived and born without sin. Any questions on that? Really, in many ways, the whole Bible is about the two Adams. And this is what Paul's bringing up in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. It's the two Adams. The first Adam, in him we have guilt and pollution. And the last Adam, in him we have righteousness and life. His one act brought us condemnation and death. His one act of righteousness brought us justification and eternal life. And the whole Old Testament ultimately is pointing forward to him, to this one uh, uh, person who would cause us to escape the wrath of God and earn for us eternal life. Okay. All right, well, we're going to jump to the next Lord's Day. It's the first time we've done this. Pretty, pretty excited about that. Let's go to Lord's Day 6. Why must he be truly human and truly righteous? Question 16. Right, and you can see the uh, biblical references there. Very straightforward. God's justice demands that the same human nature which is sinned against God must make satisfaction for sin. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, you know, in talking to unbelievers, they'll say, well, how come God just doesn't forgive everybody? You know, wave a wand. And say, so you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And so because he's just, and that demands that his justice be satisfied. And that means that the same human nature which is sinned against him must make satisfaction for sins. Okay? The same human nature which got an F on the test for the whole human race must pay the fine for that F. Okay, so now that's erased and earn an A for us. And uh, that's precisely what Jesus Christ, the God-man, has done but it's because God's justice demands that. That's why Christ has to come into the world. Um, and, and that's why had Adam not sinned, 
there would be no need for Jesus Christ. There would be no, there would be no need for the gospel. There would be no need for the Son of God ever. He would never have come into this world to be incarnate. There's no reason for him to do that. For him to, we, we would not need a mediator if Adam had fulfilled the requirement that God gave him and brought us to the goal, which is glorified life. But had Adam done that, we would never know God as merciful, as, uh, as a God full of grace. Because mercy means not getting the judgment that you rightly deserve. Mercy is when, I've used this illustration a zillion times, but when you get pulled over, it's when I get pulled over, uh, we're driving too fast, I've got a lead foot, and I know it's not good. That's why I, don't have, I sold my Ducati, no more. And, uh, but even the Honda Pilot, you know, and so I haven't got to take it taken a long time, but, uh, you know, the story I often tell is the one time I was late to church on a Sunday morning, back in the old days when you had, to, we didn't have Dropbox, and, you know, and you'd do your sermon and you'd have it on a stick, and I came over here and it wasn't on the stick, and we're about to start worship, so I have to run back to Tierra Santa, which is 15 minutes, and then come back which is 15 minutes if you're driving the speed limit. And so I was about to miss the call to worship. I've never been late, 13 years, haven't been late. That was the one Sunday I almost was late and uh, got pulled over by a chippy on Sunday morning. And those guys don't like to show mercy. And uh, some of you remember, you saw me. I was pulled over uh, <laughs> at the, uh, by the exit on Mass Boulevard. You know, he, he, just, like, he was going to just let it all hang out. I was pulled right there, and my congregation is coming off of the freeway, and they're all craning, you know, rubbernecking, looking there. And I'm like, hey. And officer comes over. I know what happens. I broke the law. I was going like 90 with my, um, with my laptop. And coming down the freeway, uh, I, breaking the law, I deserve punishment. I deserve justice. Justice, as the state of California defines it, um, would be huge fine that is ridiculously expensive, uh, hike in my insurance, shame and ridicule for having to take um, driving school, um, shame with my family, all that. And so justice, right? And so officer comes over. Stick my head out. I'm sorry, officer. I normally don't drive as fast. I'm the pastor of the church right down the street. We're about ready to start worship. I was more worried about being late than I was getting the $400 ticket. And uh, he's like, you're the pastor of the church? Yeah. Okay, well, um, I'll be right back. Checks my ID, runs me, makes sure I'm not a terrorist or whatever. Comes back, and uh, what's the last word in the Bible? And I said, uh, he's like, come on now, you're a pastor. And I said, amen. And he said, slow it down, Pastor Brown. And he let me go. You've heard that story, and I got here on time. And uh, what do you call that? Mercy. I deserved a ticket, because I was going 90, at least. Um, I've gone faster than that before, I'll be honest with you. I've gone faster than that. Um, but uh, I, was going, I deserved justice. I didn't get the justice. Now, grace is a little different. What is grace? Grace is if you are bestowed with a gift when you have demerited anything. So in that case, I deserve judgment, justice, punishment, 
I escaped. I was saved. When did you get saved? Oh, 925 this morning. Okay, on the way to church. Uh, then grace is receiving a gift on top of that. And so, the, you know, I'll often use the illustration. Had the cop walk back and said, hey, here, you know, tickets to the theater. There's $500 for you and your wife to go out to dinner. I mean, that would be weird, right? And grace is weird. Grace doesn't make sense. Grace is counterintuitive. Why would God come into the world to die for sinners? I mean, we owe God everything. God doesn't owe us anything. We get what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, it would be hell. And then God comes into the world and tastes hell for us. And what do we get in exchange? Not a new program. Okay, well, if you keep the law and you're obedient the rest of your life, well, then maybe, maybe I'll let you into heaven. No, he says, I've earned heaven all for you. All your sins forgiven. All your sins gone clothed in the righteousness and the merit of Jesus Christ, promised glorified life, raised from the dead. It's all yours. It's all good. Good news. And my job as a pastor is to convince you of that because it seems too good to be true. And so every week we come back, I have to tell you as a sinner and as a failure, it's yours. It's yours. Stop trying to think more highly of yourself because you're worse than you think, but you're also more accepted and loved than you think in Jesus Christ. And so Christ gets all the glory. God gets all the glory because of his grace. And that's what this is highlighting here. He becomes human. God's justice demands that human nature, which is sin, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he, why must he be... Why must uh, he also be true God? See that? So there you go. It's not just that he's paying for our sins; he's also earning for us righteousness and life. There's two sides to it. There's two sides to your reconciliation with God. It's not just that he died on the cross for your sins. It's also that he lived a perfectly obedient, righteous life all the way to the point of his death. And he earned for you righteousness and life because heaven has to be earned. Grace comes because some, you get what somebody else earned. We call that theft. If I take what somebody else earned, but not if, some, not if I give it to you as a gift. And it's on the undeserving. And you see, this really messes with our heads because we don't like that, right? We, don't, we want people to get what they deserve all around us. That's how we treat people, right? Short on mercy, short on grace. You cross me, you owe me. You hurt me, I write you off. And God doesn't treat us that way. And we are now to extend mercy and grace. This is what frustrated the Pharisees so much when they saw Jesus eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Why would you do that? You're defiling yourself as a rabbi. And he he says, why are you any more deserving of God's grace than they? They know they're sinners. 
And he says to the Pharisees, your problem is you don't know your sinners. You think too highly of yourself because you think you're so obedient. And so this doesn't lead us into some kind of living you know, against God's law and licentiousness. It causes us rather to be grateful for what we've been given. We have everything. We have everything in Jesus Christ. He has come into this world as a true human and also as fully God to bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity, which tells us how much that he suffered upon the cross. No, no human, I mean, it's the equivalent of an eternity in hell for every person he came to save. I mean, how can a human being bear that kind of weight only if he's upheld by the divine nature? And so Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, you can go back and listen to the Sunday school lessons. We did a series of Sunday school lessons here, uh, I think last year, on um, how the ancient church wrestled with that question of how Christ is both God and both man. And there were, there were a lot of solutions offered to that, uh, attempts at solving that quandary that ultimately resulted in false teaching and heresy and was condemned by the ancient church. So Arianism, you know, those, those, those lovely Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door, they believe that Jesus is fully man but not fully God. And that's an ancient heresy that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, you know, others who would say, well, I, I think that you know, he was in a human shell. Um, so he had a body like a man, but it was the divine nature that took up residence in the body. Um, no, that's Apollinarianism. Uh, that was condemned you know, in 431 at Ephesus, and uh, 381 in Constantinople. And uh, then different ideas. Well, maybe he is um, two different persons. You know, he has two different natures. That's Nestorianism. That's condemned at, at uh, 431 in Ephesus. And then, well, maybe he's mixed together. And so it's um, just one nature, both God and man. Uh, that's Eutychianism. That was also condemned in 451. And, uh, and so we have to, it's a difficult thing for our finite minds to grasp. How can one person have two natures, both God and both man? And there's a lot of mystery there. It's a mystical union. But nevertheless, that is how, how the Bible reveals the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Uh, he is eternally God, fully God, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity with no beginning, no end, infinite, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, incapable of sinning, takes up a human body 2,000 years ago, is conceived in the womb of a virgin, is carried nine months in pregnancy, delivered, as uh, one guy likes to say, blood, placenta, and all. You know, crying, all that, um, fully human, and now has a beginning as a human, not as God, but as a human, because he has to be human in order to satisfy the justice of God, in order for us to get mercy and us to get grace. And he has to live his whole life not only sinless, but also righteous, doing all the things that God requires of him, which Adam failed to do in order to satisfy the justice of God and to, give, and to earn heaven for us. He comes as our representative of the elect. And who are the elect? Well, all those who put their faith in Jesus. 
How do I know if I'm elect? Trust Jesus Christ. That's how you'll know. Believe on him. And Jesus came for them. Fully God, fully man. Question 18, who is this mediator? True God and at the same time, truly human and truly righteous. Yeah, see, he set us completely free from the bondage of sin, the, the, the power of sin over our lives, and free from death so that we're raised from the dead, glorified, and to make us right with God. The only way we can be right with God is if we are righteous. And the, and the only way we can be righteous is if we get the righteousness that somebody else earned, and it's credited to us, imputed to us. Uh, we, so, so your relationship with God is not based on your performance, it's based on the performance of someone else, Jesus Christ. So as Paul said in, in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live by faith, I live, that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we look to Christ for our acceptance with God. And out of gratitude now, we seek to obey him. And we are given new, newness of life in Christ. But your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It's based on Christ's performance. That's how you escaped the justice of God. And that's how you have the promise of eternal life and and glory as an inheritance. Because he's the one that earned it for you. And then question 19. How do you come to know this? Right, so the gospel, as you see, doesn't begin to be preached here with the apostles. It begins here. He says, already in paradise. That's Genesis 3.15. Right there, right when our first parents are kicked out of the garden. At the very beginning, already in paradise, right here, where the gospel begins to be preached. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel? There's another one for us. Boy, that's a thing that's confused to a lot of people. When we say gospel, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a category of music? Are we talking about a way of life? Because if you go out and you ask, you know, 100 people, what is the gospel? You're going to get probably 100 different answers. And uh, my wife recently had somebody come to the door. My wife, who's, as you know, Pretty shy, introverted. Um, big old guy comes to the door and says he's a pastor. He's, you know, collecting money. He says, oh, you're a pastor. What's the gospel? Dude didn't know. Not surprised. Not surprised. So what is the gospel? Good news. Okay. Same thing as good news. Now, that begs the question. What is the good news? That's important to say, good news, because it's not good advice. It's not a good method. It's not a new plan for living. It's news. News about what? Yeah, what Christ has done. Is there anywhere in the New Testament that defines the news? 
1 Corinthians 15. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? Right. That he was buried, that he rose again from the scripture, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by many witnesses. It's about something. The gospel is news about something that happened a long time ago. The gospel is news about an event. And again, this is why the whole thing of, you know, are you saved thing, it tends to bring it back to you and your experience rather than what Christ has done. Do you have, the better thing is to say, do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe in what Jesus Christ has done? The event that's happened, the life, death, and resurrection. That, according to the New Testament, is the gospel. The gospel is not a method for living. Rather, it's a message to be believed. Yeah, the person and work of Christ that God has revealed. God's revealed this news. And Paul's saying this everywhere in Romans, in the introduction to his letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the news. I'm ready to preach the news, to proclaim the news. Jesus says, go and preach that news. Well, when did the news first get to be preached? Heidelberg uh, points out something helpful. Already in paradise here, Genesis 3.15. And then it continues on through, notice what it says. It, this is just very good shorthand here. Uh, the holy patriarchs, so think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those are the patriarchs, um, and the prophets, portrayed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Again, so the blood sacrifices are pointing to something, portraying something. But why they are insufficient is that, first of all, it's an animal that can't remove your sin, and they require your obedience. They require you to provide the sacrifice. And ultimately, it's God who provides the sacrifice himself and the one who was perfectly obedient. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own dear son. So the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all fits together with one gospel, one good news. And here in the beginning, that news was not very clear because Christ hadn't come yet. But if you turn to Galatians, we'll close on this. If you turn to Galatians chapter 3, I remember the first time as a new Christian I read this, it just made the hair stand up on my arms. Paul's saying how Abraham, one of the patriarchs, is justified by God the same way we are, namely by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that begs the question, right? Well, how did they put their faith in Christ before Christ even came? And look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, uh, verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15. Know then, verse 7, that it is, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Not, Gen- not, not John 3.16, but Abraham... I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to, you put your trust and faith in me. I'm going to give you a people, a land. You're going to be a blessing to many nations. I will provide the sacrifice. As Abraham told Isaac, 
And Abraham believed God and he was justified. So the gospel was less clear before Christ comes, but it was sufficient. Now that Christ has come, it is in all of its clarity, right? And it goes out to the ends of the earth, that gospel. But it's important for us to understand that it's proclaimed throughout redemptive history. All right, I'm three minutes over, so we've got to stop. And then if you have questions, I'll, I'll stick around for a while and answer those. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, the God-man who has done for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you for his righteousness that has earned glory for us and for his death that has removed the debt that we owed. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him we have your mercy and grace and acceptance, that in him we are truly saved from your wrath, that we have escaped the judgment and the punishment that we deserve, and we are reconciled to you. Lord, assure us by your Holy Spirit and by your word and your sacraments that we own this eternal life by your grace, that Christ has merited it for us. And may our praise of him grow and grow throughout our lives and our desire to love him and serve him and serve his people and tell this world about him. Lord, may that burn in our hearts, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.